and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane, about to go on summer vacation. Season finale, or mid-season finale. Mid-season finale. Yeah, we're going to be off for the next couple of weeks while we, um, while Elric You're blaming me. You keep blaming me. Well, later in the interview, you will. But you're also (laughs) going on vacation. It's not like you're a robot and I'm the only human here. We're both But I always always record on the road. Those are some of my favorite shows because I'm like, I'm at an uh, RV park outside of someplace and, you know, I can see the Mothman Museum. I am going to the Mothman Museum. That was my only, I want to go see Mammoth Caves because I like cave systems for some reason. And I want to go to the Mothman Museum. And those were like my only two summer requirements. My dream is um, to not talk. I'm going to take a cockfighter-like vow of silence <laughs> and just not speak to any of the people I'm traveling with. I'll just be like, no, I am not speaking. I'm saving my voice like JR uh, from Dallas, who didn't speak on Sundays. <laughs> oh, are you serious? Yeah, Larry Hagman. He didn't speak talk on Sundays. Wow. He would not speak the entire day to like ensure that his voice would you know last as long as possible. So that always stuck I with me. That's how voices work. No, I think but, strain, okay. strain maybe. Okay. I don't know, but yeah. Uh, hey, trust da- trust Jr. Look, he survived. Trust he survived the shooting. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> You're 40 years later. You give the spoiler for Dallas. Well done. Um, But yeah, so we have an incredible interview coming up tonight with Rob Savage, um, who just directed The Boogeyman, second time on the show. Yeah, we went to, we were there on opening night at our normal uh, Burbank haunt that we usually head to, and it was phenomenal. So we're going to be talking about that in a little bit, but let's kick off with what we watched this week. What did you watch this well, week? I watched The Boogeyman with you, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that was the kind of experience awesome. I need. Um, I watched what I will call my 110 uh, double feature. Uh, 110 uh, represents because I watched Brooklyn 45 and the movie 65. So, oh, I see what you did. <laughs> I there. figure, you know, um, I, I'd combine them and they get a score of 110. Uh, Brooklyn 45 was uh, the new film by Ted Geoghegan. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly. This close, yeah. yeah. Geoghegan. Directly for yeah. Shutter. Um, this is an interesting film. I watched it and, and I always feel bad, especially when they're people you know. I watched, I put this on at like 11 something at night you know, kind of referencing his first movie because that's a, you know, you know, nice spook show kind of movie. This is a very adult, much more drama based, quite serious, like uh, and, and heartfelt script. So I and I and so I'm just saying up front, I was a little tired when I was watching and that's not the movie's fault. Uh, I was definitely engaged. But as the movie goes, you get a little faded out. So I, I've got to give it another shot during the day. It's doing really well on the festival circuit. I know that before it mm-hmm. played on Shutter. It's set in 1945. Uh, and a group of friends who are all military, uh, you know, military friends post-war, uh, World War II, are getting together different, different, they're all in kind of different phases of uh, military. They get together to kind of um, look after or kind of meet with Larry Fessenden's character who has recently lost his wife to a suicide. And the reason uh, he thinks she was driven to suicide was she was obsessed by believing some Germans uh, who were like maybe spies or something had moved into the neighborhood and no one believed her and uh, drove her to suicide. That's kind of part of it. So it has a lot of the shadow of the war, you know, which, which will make it feel a little dated in a sense, because that's always, you know, where when you're a couple wars removed, obviously that can be, but from the stories I've read about how this film was put together, that he wrote it with his father uh, who was, you know, 
uh, involved in the war and a history teacher. So it's like, okay, that's cool. That's like a neat, yeah. a neat story around the story. Um, a lot of good performances in this. Uh, Anne Ramsey's really good. Larry Fessen's always good. Um, the, uh, but Christina Klebe, who we, you know, just kind of know from the horror, you know, kind of circles here as an actress. This is one of the best things I've seen her juiciest things I've seen her get to do. Uh, she mm-hmm. plays a, character actually i'm not gonna say what she is because she comes in a little later she's not one of the friends and um she just she kind of is starts off as the MacGuffin. like what is she do we believe her story and that becomes a, a the tension i'd say of the film there is a ghost element to the film a little bit but and it's kind of being maybe marketed more towards that but i would say this is one that's a lot more serious and it's a lot more about the ghost of our past like basically they all have a past history and they're not they all have something to reckon with. Like they might not have all lived perfect lives. And and so it's about unfolding that. I think people will really enjoy it. I'm just, my warning is purely like, maybe don't start it as late as I did. Uh, Cause I feel a bit bad when I'm watching saying like this, you where you really need something. Uh, that's where I should watch my Hong Kong horrors. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, this, uh, this one, I feel like the poster is a bit deceiving because everything so. that I've read about it, the poster makes it look like a seance. Film. There, there like is a, nothing, an early scene, but like a wacky seance yeah, there's film. One, one and scene like that. it doesn't seem like that in any capacity, but it's a good poster. So it's working. It, Ted's, the thing that most impressed me, I think the writing's good, but at times maybe a little overridden and stuff. But what is impressive is actually the direction because directing in a you know like you know and as you know especially recently like in one location largely trying to keep that interesting and keeping it, the camera moving from character to character it, it's actually very effectively put together so you know uh but i think i think some people this is the kind of movie that could become some people's favorites and you know it'll be interesting to see where, where people's read are just came to shutter nice nice I'm going to start with um this just came to paramount plus this week and by all accord I should have absolutely loved Death's Roulette. Mm, I'd have never Death's heard of Roulette, it. Roulette, a Spanish film, brand new, just came to Shutter. It's big budget. This is like a huge, huge fucking movie. Like feels like a massive budget. It's um, a grandiose saw, I'll say. It is, and again, this is everything that I look for that, you know, this is a whole subgrouping of movies that I like where it is seven people mostly strangers there's one family but otherwise they don't know each other they wake up in a mansion and there's you know kind of subjected to this game where they go room to room every i guess it's like every 60 minutes in their world and every 60 minutes they have to pick who will die the person has to agree to it but they can't volunteer themselves it has to be through like a discussion where i'm like i think elric should die and then you have to protest and then we have to convince you of it and then eventually you have to accept mm. if this does not happen every 60 seconds until all seven are down to one then somebody just comes out and shoots somebody mm. and that's it and so you figure this out really quickly. And I was, and this is dubbed, by the way, even though it's a Spanish film, the whole thing is dubbed. So you can, it's hmm. it's most accessible and it's well dubbed. Like I quit paying attention to the dubbing after a while. But um, so yeah, this it's, and it actually, parts of it may not have been dubbed now that I'm thinking about it, because there were definitely characters that I did not catch that on. So forget everything I said, parts of it may not have been dubbed, mm-hmm. but that said, it was in English. So this game breaks out and everything starts and the first couple of rooms, I'm like, this is everything I love in a movie. This is great. And then they get to the third room and literally somebody is like, hey, guys, do you think blank's behind this? Well, I know blank. I know blank, too. And we're like 20 minutes into the movie and we've suddenly revealed who our jigsaw is. 
And so at that point, you know, even if the traps were cool, even if what the games that they were having to play, each one of the rooms has kind of like a thing where they're trying to figure it out. It's got clues around and they're trying to figure out what connects them together. After that moment, all of it became kind of meaningless. Mm. And this is, it's a huge mansion. Like they're going from like, we're in the lobby and now we're in the library and now we're outside in the garden maze and the whole thing is in this massive mansion that's like on an island. And so ultimately, I should have loved this movie, but it definitely kind of revealed all of its cards really early in. And that kind of killed it for me. It still had a cool twist. It still was a bunch of people trapped in a room trying to figure out why they're there. It still very much fits into those sub groupings. The production value for, of this was through the roof, like the mansion itself, the the traps, like what the, the killer had done to, you know, kind of give them clues and stuff like that was wild. Just the actual kind of delivery of the exposition, it all happened really quickly. And then we still had another two thirds of the movie to go. Hmm. And by that point, it ran out of steam. Still a cool twist at the end. But yeah, I'd say that this, it's not the best bunch of people trapped in a room movie I've ever seen. But if you're into those, like I am, I at least want to put it on your radar because I was in for part of the movie. So this is Death's Roulette currently on Paramount+. Plus. And really quickly, I want to Google if it actually was originally in Spain or was it in English and I had a stroke. Um, so continue talking while yeah, I The other this. half of my 110 uh, night is uh, 65 by Beckon Woods, who, who whose name will come up in the second half of this uh, interview as being the original writers of The Boogeyman. Um, this is the big guy crashes on planet Earth and uh, guy being um, what's his name? Uh my god uh who's the actor from this uh from oh gosh i can't remember i, I actually I, i'm I sure i wrote it adam, uh, adam driver, driver? Yeah. i'm like oh my yes. god uh which is good the adam driver of it is good he's he's always good he's really good in this even um but there's some really weird decisions in this i mean it's very watchable if you're looking for something that's kind of a little dumb pretty fun pretty well shot the dinosaurs and you know don't look bad it's like it all kind of works but there's some weird choices like like he's not from earth and that's weird like just make it earth <laughs> and then have him travel through some sort of weird time hall and be in the past but like making him from some other planet it, the opening scene is like some weird planet that looks just like earth and humanities like, they're just whatever they are they've moved like way into the future technology it just seemed so much more complicated than you could possibly deal with in a 90 minute movie because it's actually pretty tight uh running time so that was really confusing then he crashes on earth you realize it's earth you know 65 million years ago that's the title which is cool and i think that's really cool then there's a bit of a cheat and there's some little girl who survives the crash because he's transporting a bunch of people and he's got this this baggage with his actual daughter and so it's all about him you know making mints with her i think this would have been a much more interesting movie if it was just a sole person a single person trying to survive this because i think more like 127 hours or those kind of survivalist type movies i think it would have just been so much more interesting to see him by himself trying to do it obviously dramatically and for writing scripts it's a lot easier to put someone else in there for them to bounce off i just found it to be a little contrived with that but it's watch it's totally watchable it's pretty fun but i don't think it's it, it doesn't kind of quite live up to what it should be uh because there's something about the high concept of it that is really really cool now is this like marnie has begged me to yeah, watch she could totally this movie watch because it. it's dinosaurs okay, oh totally so yeah yeah it's totally fun it'd be this. fun yeah. for her and the girl's about her age so there's like nothing nothing weird or nothing sexual nothing you know it's pretty straightforward you know 
Um, and the dinosaurs okay. at times look cool. Like there's a couple cool reveals and stuff. Um, again, there's just some weird, sometimes a whole movie can be kind of undone just by a weird choice. Like, yes, this is from you're on planet Xenon. And now you're, and you're like, but they're just humans and they're doing human things. It's why did you even bother doing that? I don't know. Um, maybe there's, more I stuff. like Adam driver. He's really good. I'll He's really watch. good. Him versus, yeah. him versus dinosaurs. And maybe it could have been COVID kind of production too, to keep it mm-hmm. minimal. Um, definitely not bad. Like I was surprised, but I was like, oh, that's breezy and fun to watch. But um, I guess I'm looking for it to be that little extra better, but yeah, that's on me. Um, so my next one is brand new. It was not breezy to watch. Mm-hmm. It was definitely, I, there were parts of it that I liked, but I wanted it to be um, a lot breezier to get through. And that is the bunker, or I think it's just called bunker. Mm. No, the um, just bunker. And we had seen a preview for this theatrically, I think it played before Infinity Pool. We saw a trailer for this because it played with Ennis men and then it had the bunker and there was a whole bunch of them that we played in a row that I was like making mental notes of like, okay, when this comes out, I want to see it. And so at some point when we had seen some type of theatrical presentation, we had seen a preview for this. And so the concept for it is that a group, it's set in World War One, and a group of British soldiers, and I think there's an American amongst them as well, are traveling and they're, they're in trenches. There's a whole subplot about the trenches. There's a lot of lice, which I had issues with <laughs> because I swear to God, I can watch a werewolf chew somebody's face off and not even think twice about it. If a character has lice and I'm seeing the lice and I'm seeing them dig at them, I will, my head will itch the entire movie. Like it's such like a weird connective thing where immediately that like, that put me on edge to begin with. But okay, so that's just all kind of the lead in it. So it's a group of soldiers. They're in the trenches, World War One, British and American soldiers. They have taken down a couple of German soldiers and they are now happening upon a German bunker. And they think they're going to raid the bunker. They're going to run in. They're going to take it away from the Germans. And it's awesome. They go through this whole procedure of getting in there and the bunker's completely empty. They get in there and they're like, fuck, why did they leave their bunker? This There's a lot of stuff here. Why would they just leave? And then all of a sudden bombs drop dropping and it seals them in. It literally causes like the entire entrance to the bunker is bombed so that they can't even get back out. And they quickly realized that the bombs that were dropped, it was not the Americans or the British bombing the German bunker. The Germans were bombing their own bunker. The Germans sealed their own bunker. And so the Americans and the British are immediately like, why would the Germans seal their own bunker? And there we, we horror fans were wise. Something bad is in there. We immediately know that there is something bad in there. And so we know immediately that there is going to be something in that bunker with them that the Germans don't want to get out. It takes a really long time to get to that point. Like you get that people are starting to change. There's some mental unhingedness happening. You don't know how much is it because that they're trapped in there or because of what they're trapped in there with. I was hoping for it to be the thing in a World War One bump bunker. Like that for me is like a great set. Yeah, like the keep it, or something. Like a Yeah, like the keep, you know, it did not quite reach that peak ever. There was a lot of kind of um drama to get to that. Like I can best compare it to like a BBC war drama. And it felt like that production-wise too, like it very much felt like a BBC mm. British 
bunker set like you it felt like i was watching a bbc tv show a lot of drama with the soldiers who's in charge what's going on and then in the third act the horror kicks in the acting it was a little spotty in parts so that kind of pulled me out at moments but ultimately it was a really cool concept it just it very i have a feeling it was a a pandemic production very trapped And whereas you were talking about like something like Brooklyn 45, where, you know, it's one room with limited people and it's made to feel bigger, like the camera is working to make you kind of not feel like you're trapped in one room. This, the camera was working to make you feel like you're trapped in one room. And so by the time that we're just dealing with the soldiers, endless drama in the second and lice and endless lice in the second act, I was like, it was literally like it was embodying in me where it was feeling so anxious and so difficult to watch. And then the third act, the horror comes. So this one was a little mixed for me, but if this sounds like your bag, you know, this is, um, I think I paid four ninety nine to rent this. So, and it's, it's got mixed reviews, but it, there are definitely some people out there who have really loved it. So bunker just released. Okay. Yeah. What was the, the tank? I, I was trying to getting it mixed up with the one I saw a few weeks ago called the tank. Um, so speaking of Brooklyn, Brooklyn 45, when I was at the Brooklyn horror film festival last year, there was a film that I couldn't make it to. Cause I, I had two films. There was a film called uh was it mother may i i think is the one i went to and at the same time there's a film called old flame and i was very curious about it it's not just had an interesting very mysterious write-up and i couldn't see it and a couple days ago fandor is one of those channels that if i'm like sometimes i forget i'm subscribed briefly to something and i usually subscribe just for one movie there'll be one thing i need to see so i'll subscribe then i'll forget about it so i'd forgotten i had fandor and i'm that's their business <laughs> model hey, it's working for fandor but i'm not scrolling through it and i actually found a couple of things i really wanted to watch it was kind of nice i was like oh they have some good stuff but this movie popped up and i was like oh cool so it must have just come out like a new release but straight to fandor um and so i hadn't gone to see it and it is uh i would say this is for people who dig like a hard candy type setup. It is, this is definitely a pandemic film. It is uh, directed by an actor. His name's Christopher Denman. He is in a lot of, you would absolutely recognize him. He was in the sound of my voice. He was in billions. He's, he's just got a very definitive look, but he's also been directing smaller films and he directed this with two actors. He's not in it. Uh, Two actors who basically it's a college reunion probably I'm assuming maybe 15 years, 20 years, maybe I'm not sure where you crazy Americans do with your reunions, but um, usually 20. Yeah, It's probably 20 given they're they're probably in their mid thirties or something. Uh, they, it, the one guy is basically alone at the hotel and he's setting up by himself. Like he got there early. He's he looks very slick. Like he's re- well put together and he's uh, obviously done well for himself. And he's like putting together some decorations and stuff. And he's just a bit early. And then this, you know, uh, young woman walks in and kind of says hi to him and they start to remember, Oh yeah, that's right. I, you know, I can't believe you're here and you're here early and hadn't seen each other in tw- 20 years, blah, blah. And it, basically with a, I can't, I won't spoil too much because it's really just about the back and forth uh, of the dialogue and how the nuance and how they get to it. But, but there is, a difference in opinion of what happened one night in the past that you find out they had dated briefly and that their lives went very different directions after one specific night uh, involving potentially an assault uh, between them. And it 
it's just the the nuance and the back and forth dialogue and the like emotional just subtle emotional work that's being done that these kind of movies if i start one of these i know they're not necessarily they don't sound like exciting sometimes when you say two people but if you start one it's often really hard to you don't want to turn off because if they're if it's done well kind of like when we watched sanctuary a few weeks ago very much Mm -hmm. like that where if you can get hooked by by needing to know you need to watch the whole thing because you need to know what actually happened is this a is this going to be like he said she said but very different perspectives or are they going to actually get to the truth and this one yeah does take you to the truth which i i appreciate in a movie like this i thought it was really very watchable and and it gets kind of dark and weird she was in in theater so there's a mask element that they talk about in the past where she had worn i'm looking like at a Greek pictures mask. yeah yeah the mask looks it's fucked cool. up. it's not a very like, visual movie like most of it is just two actors talking so i don't want to oversell that element of it but but there is an element to to the backstory about it that's just interesting but i you know if you're looking for saying different this was a nice one to stumble upon uh and if you're looking for like oh what could i do for a low budget and t- with two people if your writing's good enough and you get two good two really strong actors you can pull off some quite compelling so that's old flame on Fandor. <laughs> Fandor coming back um i'm gonna go to my reads for this week and then i'll round out with like my final holy fucking shit yeah, movie i've got one more um, crazy one but yeah Okay, I'll I'll go to my reads first and then we'll circle to yours. So I read um Shock Shop by Colin Bunn. Okay. And I this is I've been reading this as weeklies. I'd been getting the weekly comics for it. I had not read any of them yet, so I binged all of them this week up to date. This is really fun. It's an anthology style series where it's two different stories in one comic. And so you're following both of them. One is called Familiars and one is called Something in the Woods. And what's really cool is you read one and then you flip the comic over and then you can read another one going the alternate way. And he's using kind of a horror hostess trope where it's supposed to be this woman who this devilish woman who owns this creepy shop and she's telling the stories about some of the things in the shop. The first one, The Familiars, I definitely liked this one um, a little bit more. Actually, no, I'll take that back. I liked them both, but yeah. Um, this Familiars, it's about divorce. This guy who uh, rents a house and is trying to get his life back together, but then he realizes that the house is haunted, but that it's kind of like feeding on his feelings, and then it starts attacking family members. Hmm. And you, re- it's, it's about grief and guilt and things like that, but he is... Something in the house is kind of bringing itself to life in him and it's attacking other people, whether they can see the monsters or not. And then the other story that it's including is something in the woods, which is about a group of friends who are on a camping trip. And as they are camping, they realize that something is following them. This one comes on real slow and then it gets real Lovecraftian. It just, it starts out as just a group of campers shooting the shit. There's drama between them. Something's following us. Hey, that's a creepy shadow. Did you hear something, Ted? And then all of a sudden it just goes full Lovecraft. So this one, I I definitely hit, I'd say I hit with both of them in different ways. But yeah, this is still coming out, dare I say. I feel like this is a recent one, and I've just had the weekly sitting in my mailbox at the comic book shop for a while. So this was a fun one. If you have not read this one, it's definitely worth going back and picking up all of the issues thus far to pick up. And the art was really good. I really Hmm. liked the art in both of these. And then I will also give a quick plug because last week I was hesitant to include some of the YA and middle grade horror stuff I'd been reading because I was like, well, our listeners are all like, you know, over 18 and not too into their middle grade stuff. But I got a lot of messages from parents saying, 
thanks. This really gave me something good to read with my kids this summer. So much so that like the author of the clackety responded to me on Twitter because a couple people had told her that I'd been talking about the book. So I just quickly wanted to mention one more middle grade that I had just finished reading with my kids that was really tight. The Finch House, Finch House by Sierra Birch. This one's from McElderry Press. And it is a girl who has, she has to kind of convince this haunted house that is controlling her dad and her family to release them. And it's got, um, I think on the front cover, it says Encanto meets Coraline. It's very much like the house is alive and she has to try to wager with the house and go on a journey to try to get the house to give her, her family back. And so it's middle grade, but this was a really fun read that I just, uh, my daughter and I read this together. So that is Finch House. Mm, okay. Um, well, let me tell you about a urinal story that happened to me once. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, that was that was a, a wild swing. The, the, Let's do the it. The first time I ever came to, the first night I ever came to LA before I moved here, I was visiting just to check it out to see if I wanted to live here. And I was in a... Uh, in a bar and I went to the bathroom and I'm at the urinal and a man comes in really drunk and he's just talking to himself and he's obviously upset. And he's just like, I mean, if Rennie Harlan tells you to find a missile silo, you better find a missile silo. And then he looks right at me across from the urinal. He's like, am I right? And I just looked at him and went, man, I got to live here. This is fucking Hollywood. He's talking about Rennie Harlan. He knows Rennie Harlan. I was so excited. Uh, <laughs> that's a true story. Uh, so my next movie is a Rennie Harlan movie uh, that I... Which just not- did wait? Did Rennie Harlan ever put a missile silo in his uh, movie? I mean, if I he made like, like a, this was definitely post Die Hard two, so it wouldn't have been Die Hard two. So maybe some action movie. I, I, it would have been circa two thousand and probably eight nine. So we'll have to look up his filmography after that. Okay, uh, listeners, do some research. We need to know if there was ever a myth- missile maybe silo. Maybe this guy in failed. This dude failed yeah. in his task of finding Randy Harlan per- a missile silo. His location manager was just oh, he I love the wording of it too, and he was just so serious. Like he wasn't fucking. This guy was had just been talking to somebody who was talking to Randy. It was really interesting. Anyway, um, so I the new Bev recently did, and I didn't get to go to it. Uh, you know, when Phil programmed some of these harathons, he did a 2000s harathon. And uh, there was a, most of the movies were ones I knew and or liked or whatever. I was like, okay, okay. And then there's one called Mind Hunters. And I was like, I definitely remember the cover, but I don't know if I ever watched this movie. And it was Rennie Harlan and it was and a pretty cool cast. And I was like, and and even after watching it, I'm still not 100% sure if I've seen it before. But I because we had talked about The Snowman and a couple other movies recently that are like movies that don't get made much now, which are really slick, big, somebody's a serial killer. I think you, I, I decided to not put this on Patreon because I think there's a lot of people who appreciate something like this. And I think you would appreciate this. And weirdly enough, on Amazon, it costs like $4.50 right now. So it must be like a new like a new look like must be a new transfer or something like just got released because it looked really good so this i swear to god this week popped up on my recommendations and it was after and i'm not even going to talk about this till we get to our patreon yeah. show this week i watched children of the corn three yeah that's what i wanted Harvest. to watch lately I don't know okay so that one it was yeah. a wild recommendation off of a bunch of trivia people but after i finished it it popped up with you may also like 
Mindhunter oh, was there and I added it to my queue. And I have no idea the connection between Children of the Corn 3 and Mindhunter, but it is now on my queue. Yeah, I don't know what that would be, but I, oh. I'm sure the Harathon, like a lot of people are suddenly rating it on Letterboxd, of course, but I actually saw a lot of high ratings. So that was part of my thing where you're like post 2000 movies, you just never know. So it's like, okay, did I see this? Now I was, you know, you know this, but not everyone, you know, like I have a degree in criminology. That was my thing. I wanted to be, a, because I watched body parts, I wanted to be a criminal psychologist. Not, I'm not just saying that. That's um, your fucking reason. It really was. Was that one? It was actually, like I said, it was the trailer to that movie that made me want to become a, not even the movie. I saw the trailer. It was like criminal psychologist, Jeff Fee. And I was like, I want to do that when I'm older. Anyway, uh, cut to me many years later, obviously missing Mindhunter. Mindhunter is a training program. So it opens up where you think to, to uh, Christian Slater and um, what's her name? Catherine Mars. They are FBI agents and they are leaving this spooky looking house. And suddenly they hear a gunshot and they're like, we have to go in and they go in and it's super intense. And they're trying to like protect someone and they're shootings. And then like the lights turn on, you go, Oh, this was a training thing. So you think you're in seven basically for a few minutes and it's really, you know, it's fun and over the top, but then you realize this was a training video and guess who's training them. This is why you have to watch this movie immediately. Val Kilmer is the head of this training program for, for, serial killer profilers in the fbi i mean it's just couldn't get cooler than that uh so he's training them uh this is a, he's kind of pissy with slater for you know that you guys aren't going to be ready you know to take on if this happens in real life you're just going to freeze he keeps telling the Catherine morris trainee that she's just like not ready for the the big league anyway uh, then you start meeting the rest of the team. They kind of take you back to base where only the elite people and you got Johnny Lee Miller from train spotting. And, and that's the part that I kind of do remember. I do remember Johnny Lee Miller. So I must've seen it. Uh, this is, you know, not too long after that. Uh, Clifton Collins jr. Is in a wheelchair in this. And he, you know, he's real. I, I think he's a terrific actor. I really do. I think he's always been really good. Uh, and a little later, LL Cool J rolls into this film. And that's where I might've looked at the cover and gone, what? Um, but uh, the idea is the next day, all of the, and there's more, there's like four or four other characters. Uh, we're going to take the small elite group and we're going to go to kind of like a little Alcatraz. It's like a little self Island that is owned by the FBI. And you guys, are, there will be a, a scenario play out. You will find a pretend body. There'll be a, you, you, I mean, you guys have to have a profile by me by Monday and it's all real high stakes. So it's shot like Rennie Harlan. Every camera move is swooping. I mean, it. that's what's so fun. It's like this big, big a concept kind of thing directed to the hill. Uh, and then what happens? Somebody gets killed for real, and one of our training, one of them is a serial killer. So one of them is a real serial killer trapped on an island. You're going to figure it out, and and body by body, they start getting knocked out, and the kills are huge. The kills are massive, big, like, set piece, crazy, like, uh, twists all related to the characters. Like, however they die has something to do with them. And I got to say had a lot of fun and that's why i'm putting it on the show because i just think if it's a late friday night and you're like ah, i just can't find any new heart this was yeah hats off if it was phil who programmed this at the hearth this one i had a lot of fun catching up with this again maybe uh better than say like detox that stallone one that has a similar kind of you know a bunch of people mm-hmm. trapped that's an okay watchable movie but it's not not as fun as this uh rennie harlan's a good director uh yeah but yeah, there's some fun twists to this one. Uh, and I, I just think you would personally probably rather enjoy this one. It's a whole 350 on Amazon. So I'm sold. I think I'm going to have to watch it tonight for fun. our deep cuts later this yeah. week. So I can partner it with Children of the Corn 3 for some unknown reason. The urban so. one, right? That's the urban. The urban harvest. Yeah, I'm looking I forward say, to hearing was, about that. 
totally fucking watchable fun movie i was not it's because we we watched that children of the corn remake and i didn't you know it didn't work for me and i haven't really watched many of the sequels maybe none of them and somebody was like oh you gotta watch three (laughs) so so this had happened at trivia where i was talking with jared about something and children Mm -hmm. of the corn came up and all of a sudden somebody came over and i can't even remember who it was it was like dick came over and was like well yeah children of the corn three is the best and then immediately parker was like oh are you guys talking about children of the corn three and then shane's like oh children of the corn three rules and i'm I'm just pulling names but that's and suddenly there was this like pack of people around jared and i talking about how children of the corn three rules and i was like okay i have to see this now and it was it had amazing kills it was bonkers it was just a left field concept this is the best cliffhanger was watchable can't tell us anymore because I can't because you're going to tell into the Patreon the, show. If you've ever wondered what's happening over there and you're like, I wonder what they get up to. That's what you get up to. That's you will learn you about Children of the Corn Part. Children of the Corn 3. Um, okay, so I am going to end with what has been the ultimate cliffhanger, because back when we had Stephen Graham Jones mm. on like three months ago. He, we had, we're talking about like deep cut slashers. We had talked about 90 slashers and he rolled in with this deep cut slasher. Neither of us had ever heard of called night of the dribbler. And he was like, I've never seen it. I just found it. I found the title. And I was like, what? Well, and, and, and I think I it, like, the, the caveat, he said, I think me and him were talking about basketball. And we we're like, why has there never been a good basketball slasher? And then I think he was like, looked something up and he was like, night of the dribbler. <laughs> and then, and yeah. then no one's seen it though. And so we found it 1990 slasher basketball themed slasher. And so on that show, none of the three of us had seen it. And we were like, let's hunt this down. Well, Night of the Dribbler is really hard to find because it had never been released in America at all until Mm. Code Red back in like 2007 did this really, really limited run of it. So even the DVD of Night of the Dribbler, the Code Red one that they did now, is like 75 bucks and I cannot justify that for night of the dribbler. So it took me a long time to hunt this down in a capacity that I could watch it and afford it. Um, But let's just say through, through means and some very kind networks, I found night of the dribbler. And so all I can say here is what the ever loving fuck Good. this movie was wild so it is a spoof it is set up as a spoof and actually i'm going to back that up even more amazing opening credit sequence it has an animated opening credit sequence like we could only do in the late 90s early or late 80s early 90s where it is a fully animated opening credit sequence a la mannequin Mm. um and then the song that is playing over top of it is the cleverest, most highly derivative combination of Axel F and that do-bo-bo-ch-ch-ch-ch mm. ch- 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 song. And it is just three bars of do-bo-bo-p, and then it goes into Axel F for a bit. And so it's just this highly derivative combination that just made me giggle. It is a spoof. It is trying to be pandemonium or student bodies or, you know, Zucker Brothers, like airplane level of spoofiness. I don't know if it ever gets even close to any of those, but it's really trying hard. It has this kind of regional feeling to it. Like you keep thinking, like, I feel like I'm watching like a regional movie because everybody seems really endearing. And like, this is being made by a theater troupe. No, it's being made in Beverly Hills. Like this is an LA movie through and through, but it does not feel like that. It feels like some type of tiny little regional theater troupe is putting together. They clearly had one really good comedian actor 
who plays multiple roles and he plays the MC at all of the basketball games. Some of his MCing borderlines racist because he does a whole gamut of accents that he should never be doing. So I will forewarn you about that. Um, But yeah, he's playing multiple roles in the movie. Ultimately, the story is about a losing basketball team. They're called the Plumbers. And they've been losing, but they're going up to this big championship game and they think they might actually win this one. And they're up against their biggest rivals, but somebody is picking off the star players. And the person who is picking off the star players is dressed up like a giant basketball. <laughs> I need to see they this are, character. They are wearing the team's like warm-up uniform, but with a giant fucking basketball with eyes and a mouth on their head, like fully articulated giant basketball head. And the kills are the best part of the movie because whereas the spoof jokes don't land, they're making weird references to movies like 1990s. There's a character who is Elvis, like a a basketball character who's Elvis. They're referencing movies from the 60s. Like it's weird amount of spoofiness because none of it really seems successful. But the kills are incredibly fun. They're not good, but they're incredibly fun and bonkers and really crazily orchestrated. So amazing, gory, you know, not brilliantly looking, but just fun kills. Um, so yeah, this is from the producer of snuff and a lot of porn. Um, like that is what most of this team was known for. As you look them up, the producer had done a couple of horror films in the seventies, but then a lot of porn and the director as well was known for a film called sex family Robinson. And, uh, yeah, that was, and a lot of porn, but somehow in the eighties or late night eighties, early nineties shifted over to this. And again, it feels like they just got a bunch of their friends together to make this. And yeah, this one, I'll call it like a slasher completionist or a spoof completionist. Or if you're like Elric and I, where as soon as somebody says it's really hard to find, you're immediately like, well, I got to see that sucker. Welcome to this. My favorite. There were a couple of times that I actually did laugh out loud at some of the gags. And one of my favorite ones, which has now become a thing around the house. I let my kids kept walking in while I was watching this. And somehow this gag has caught on around the house where it's, um, can I can I have a word with you? And then they'd say, sure. Um, how about lasagna? And then that would be the end of the conversation. And then a couple of minutes later, can I get a, a word with you over here? Um, mailbox. And then that's just the end of the conversation. And somehow it's become a running joke in my family now. So yeah. Um, so would you say but- Night of the Dribbler changed your life? <laughs> I mean, it's altered the fabric of your family unit. It's it's you feel like you're feeding me something that's later going to appear on the box cover for when yeah, yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody does re-release. a nicer release of this. Um, Night of the Dribbler changed my life, y'all. Just be glad he didn't <laughs> he didn't title his porn Night of the Dribbler because that's a terrible. He did have one. No. The prior. Okay, no. so this was it. I wasn't even going to mention this on the film because no. the show because I was like, it's a weird connection. His prior film that the guy directed to this one was called The Honey Dribblers, oh. which is. A porn with not even appealing title. It just makes me go, ew. And then this, and he follows it up with Night of the Dribbler, which is the best. You never have leakage in your porn title. No leakage. (laughs) Just, you know, know, let's keep it clean, guys. All right. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad you did this. I'm glad you took this bullet, and I am excited to uh, watch this at some point. Um, I am now the proud owner of a Night of the Dribbler DVD. So when you feel bold, like you need to take this step, let me know, and I will bring it to you and be okay. like i'm passing this on to you elric and now it can change the fabric of your family we can do though yeah can i have a word yeah. can i have a word <laughs> <laughs> anyways 
Night of the Dribbler. Godspeed, y'all. Go find this one. Um, yeah, it's it's a thing. It's a view. I, I will say, no matter how bad the jokes got or how bad the film was, there was never a point where I wanted to turn it off. So there you go. The last thing I'll, I'll say real quick, because it is kind of related to porn. Uh, I did watch the first two episodes of The Idol. Um, <laughs> it's like, I, I'm not scared. I like I like putting sex in shows great like thank god because things have become so chaste uh so that level of it doesn't bother me at all and it actually does push the envelope there's some stuff where where it's lily rose depp is the lead she's kind of a um kind of a, in the shadow of maybe a britney type star who has mm-hmm. had a meltdown prior to the proceedings that you're watching the show it's by the uh, euphoria creator so it's got that same style uh you're coming in as she's trying to resurrect her career after maybe a slight mental breakdown and a loss of her mother and she has a hit single that they're about to release that they know is going to be hit but she's not really feeling it and it's all set like it's quite cool the real time of the first episode is really just like oh it's just her trying to get ready for this recording the song and all the handlers around her is kind of where the disturbing part is um but what's interesting is and this is the weekend is the other co-creator of this and he i thought this was about a well that's the thing the first and so i've only seen the first two episodes i just watched the other one last night and as of yet, the cult in the first episode, you wouldn't even have a clue that this would go hard. It just feels like maybe neon demonish in the terms of the satire mm-hmm. of Hollywood, but very accurate. Eli Roth rolls in as a sleazy producer, and he's actually quite funny. Um, the star right now, the real standout to me is like a supporting role, Rachel Sennett from Bodies, 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 the girl we both really love from that. Oh, I love he her. He is yeah. great as her handler, like as her friend, who's also her, you know, try, wakes her up every morning. But as a profile of a star who's kind of lost in that being handled to death and also maybe losing what their creative voices, it's actually really interesting. I'm, I'm definitely interested, but the sexual stuff really pushes pretty far. But what I'm not sure about is where this is going to go hard. It's it's obviously going to be maybe a toxic kind of thing because the, the weekend comes in, he meets her at a bar and kind of starts to seduce her. But he you don't really know who he is. There's some hints in the second episode that there might be a cult thing, but the word hasn't come up. I have no idea, but I know that it ended up being in Fangoria. And I saw some photos in Fangoria that looked pretty gory, but I don't know yeah. what that means. Like I truly from the first two episodes couldn't. So I think it will have a place in maybe talking about on the horror, on a horror show like ours, but I haven't seen it in the first two episodes, but I found it quite funny in a dark kind of nihilistic way. Cause the handlers are all just having side conversations about her that are pretty amusing uh, because the drama is, can this person hold their shit together or are they going to melt down and lose us a bunch of money? That's really what it's about. Um, you know, and these guys probably the people creating this, like, especially the weekend obviously knows what that pressure is like as a massive star, a uh, musical star. So anyway, I'm, I'm interested. I don't know if I'm totally hooked yet. Cause I don't know what the thing is yet. It's, it's a mm-hmm. little unclear, but I'm hoping it's a cult thing. Cause like, you know, we love our Hollywood cults. I do love Hollywood Hopefully. cults. I, this is on Max, right? Yeah, it's or an HBO, HBO show. HBO so Max. Yeah. I don't know what the difference is now. On the Max, um, yes. Okay, excellent. Well, shall we go get our boogie on? Yes, let's talk to somebody who uh, is always a really good uh, conversation with Mr. Yeah. Rob Savage. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by XYZ Films and their new release, God is a Bullet. The unrated revenge thriller God is a Bullet hits theaters Friday, June 26th. When a police detective's daughter is kidnapped by a satanic cult, he quits the force and partners with the cult's only female escapee to hunt them down. How far would you go to save the one you love? Inspired by real events and based on the best-selling novel by Boston Tehran, starring Nikolai Acosta-Waldo, Micah Monroe, and Jamie Foxx. Don't miss God is a Bullet, the late-night movie of the summer.
All right. Very excited uh, to have joining us uh, someone who I think just directed the hell out of this movie. We both kind of walked out of it really just loving the craft of of the boogeyman. Uh, Director Rob Savage is back. How you doing, bud? I'm very well. How are you? Doing well. It is good to see you again. Yeah, it's been a while. Sorry, I'm just like I'm analyzing the posters in the background on your walls. So, yeah, I have Up From the Depths. And over here, I have Unholy Rollers. And what's wild is I will teach my classes on Zoom occasionally still. And my students are like, oh, you put Up From the Depths in the background. Is it a good movie? And I'm like, no, but it's a <laughs> kick-ass poster. And that's the important thing. I'll challenge Rob. You have, to name, you have to name them, Rob. Wait, wait, I just, 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 to, just to pause a bit on Unholy Rollers, because I, I've never heard of this movie until two weeks ago. And it's come up on two different podcasts oh. that I've been on, Unholy it's- Rollers. Wild exploitive roller derby from the nineteen yeah. seventies. It's Corman, pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. It's it's not even it's not even the best roller skate movie from that year. That's the no. thing. That that was the that was the crazy fact that I learned the other day. It's the kickoff because by the time we get into the late seventies, early eighties, you get into this whole roller skating craze where you've got all of these like Xanadu, I think probably led into that as well. But there's a whole roller skating subgenre that takes place in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was it's a wild subgenre to explore. I, I love did, it. So Rob, what's I your did, next roller skating movie on your list? <laughs> I don't know. A roller skating horror movie would be pretty would cool. Be pretty good. Right. I did. I did Doug Benson's podcast the other week, and I've been on the, his show. It's fun. It's so much fun. I was so rubbish. But one of the questions was like, "There's a tagline: the roller skate movie of 1971 or whatever it is." And somebody guessed "Unholy Rollers," but it's not. That's not even the best roller skate movie. Is it Roller Boogie? Roller Boogie. Yes, you're exactly roller right. Wow. All right. That one's got Linda Blair in it, right? It does. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a very I don't think she's fully there in it, but it was it was those Linda Blair years. But yeah, she's I think she's in it. I host so. two different podcasts um, and both of them my co-hosts are obsessed by roller skating movies. I, I on the other hand am not really, but she talks about them all the time and on Pure Cinema Brian's always talking about roller boogie or or so I'm just like I'm 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 in the sandwich, you know. Yeah. Well, now that now that I know that you're in Burbank, we're going to have to cruise the bike path on roller skates because that's my jam. I love that. I can't I can't drive. So I basically live on Chandler Boulevard on Chandler bike path. So have you just never learned to drive or you just haven't learned to drive reverse like we do here? in the No, I'm just I'm just a man child. I just can't (laughs) drive. I just I cycle everywhere. That is awesome. I have friends who one wheel everywhere and I am so not that cool. I just I can't. So me neither. Elric, what do you? I know a couple of yours, but what are the other? Oh yeah, ones? this is the worst content for a podcast, but whatever. What's that one? He knows this movie because you can pretty much tell. Oh, it's Blue Velvet, yeah. and then is that Good, the Bad, and the Ugly next well, to it? For a few dollars more, it's a Japanese a few dollars more. What's Night Tide? Night- oh my God, Night Tide's oh, yeah. amazing, yeah. Rob. You would love I've never it. Heard of that movie? It's a ghostly Corman era type thing. Curtis Harrington directed it. Venice Beach. Dennis Hopper's. One of his very one of Dennis Hopper's, I think role. it's his first film. Yeah, yeah. super young in it. Really, Mer- mermaid, mermaid ghost kind of horror. It's yeah, it's a it, it's tight. the poster ghost is as horror. good as the that's movie. My, that's, <laughs> that's my niche. What's and then what's what's the one? What's the red? That was one? one of the earlier Mondo posters they did for um, uh, Maltese Falcon. Oh, because my yeah. kid's called Dashiell, so I had to get you know. Your Alex kid's called Dashiell. My kid's Dashiell, named after Dashiell Hammett, so it's like, come on. Yeah, and then amazing. he also has amazing. a Keaton named after Buster Keaton, and mine is Marnie for Hitchcock, and then Strummer for Joe Strummer. So yeah, we're all 
That's so cool. highly derivative. But even though children, naming children's like... cool, don't rush into it. This is a no, public warning. Be... Do not rush into it. You'll lose that'd ten years. Be... That'd literally be the only reason that I would ever have kids. Mm-hmm. It's like a hermit cool crab. Things. Give it a cool name. Well, yeah. It's just the same. It's what's the pet? What's the pet that lives the the, the least amount of time? That's probably my. Oh, yeah. Best you know, I just bought a jumping spider because they're really cute, and oh, my yeah. son fell in love with it at the store, and then the guy is like. Don't tell your son, but they only live for 18 months. And I was like, oh, okay. So I have to keep buying a jumping spider every 18 (laughs) months and being like, oh, jumpy shrunk last night, guys. So um, yeah, it might be jumping spider. So buy a jumping spider, name him or her, whatever, whatever your child would be. And and I've got a couple of black widows that live in the yard. I'll just name them. (laughs) Name name your friend. (laughs) Well, you've got Evil Dead too, uh, but that's all the time we have for today. Hopefully everyone enjoyed the house tours of our home. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, let's 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 kick into Boogeyman because I, I love that. I love how different this is for you as a director. I love how like you have two films that uh, I think each film is doing something very different, obviously, in terms yeah. of scale. But this is a classically made spook show haunted house film yeah. and and really shows off, I think, you know, really great sense of craft and eye and, and really both fully loved it like as soon as we watched it we contacted yeah. you an, an hour probably after we got home i think like, it was like an oh, hour after we got yeah, home we both like, had fun. you gotta join us next week yeah, yeah and yeah. i have to i i'm gonna kick off by telling you about the screening that yeah. we were at and then we have to hear all about the making of it but we went to the am 16 in burbank which is our normal haunt my local um yeah we went on opening night and it was a packed audience Everyone was screaming and cheering. And there was a group of teens in front of us that honestly, when a group of teens rolls in in front of me in a movie theater, my first instinct is, fuck, they're going to be on their phones the Mm -hmm. whole time. This is going to be awful. And they were so into it to the point where they stood up and cheered at one point. There were two guys that literally stood up. I I think I know. I know the moment. I know the moment. And they went full Rudy. Both of them were arms extended. Arms extended. (laughs) And it was kind of wild. I was like, wow, I haven't seen that for a while. It was a wild screening and this so, is des- yeah. this is designed as an anti-phone movie this is like this movie is like nine what's like 93 minutes it was meant yeah. to be there's no there's no fat on this yeah. thing yeah was the idea there's so, no moment there's no moment where you feel safe to like you know check your twitter feed yeah take us back and how you got involved with this one because this is kind of a hot property like i've heard this one getting kicked around for a while about it's, you know bringing it back and rebooting it and yeah, yeah how did you kind of come into the fold it's had a long life because Beckenwoods were Beckenwoods who did a quiet place, you know, mm-hmm. they did a draft. Uh, this was, Oh God, I don't know how the pandemic kind of like has screwed up my time, my perception of time, but like they, they, they'd been developing this project for a while or something for them to direct. Then when the Disney merger happened, a lot of stuff just got canned, including this one. So it was dead for a while. And then it kind of got resuscitated just at the time when host was hitting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was being offered every single horror script in town that nobody else wanted to do mm-hmm. when Host came out, and um, and they were all awful. And then I got this one script, which wasn't awful. It was it was great, and it was you know based on this Stephen King short story, which I remembered. I remembered reading as a kid. It was one of the ones that really kind of like messed with me. I mean, you know, a lot of the like Night Shift was probably the first book that I read of King's. And I remember this story just feeling really icky, and uh, yeah. the. Yeah, I think that you know the, the the I think I think the thing that drew me to it it was it was it was King it was Beckenwoods, but it was also just the idea of taking 
the boogeyman as a title which is a, which is an objectively like silly title mm-hmm. and doing you know a kind of classy definitive take on the boogeyman and i think you know it helps when you've got king's name floating above the title but there's been so many bad boogeyman movies and mm-hmm. you know varying degrees of fun but they're 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 mostly pretty shoddy and the idea of taking this thing which is basically the first way that we interpret fear and danger as a kid it's the first way as the parents kind of talk about the evil out there in the world making that scary again making an audience feel the way that I felt when I was you know when I was a kid reading King way too young and getting freaked out and having to sleep with the lights on like taking an audience back into that feeling that felt like something worth doing and that felt like something felt like a big enough swing to follow up these these um these very 2020 movies that I just mm-hmm. done, you know, I, I like I shot host and dash cam literally in six months back to back in 2020, um, just on this kind of mad, this kind of mad filmmaking run of um, with, with, with kind of a completely different uh, objective from Boogeyman. Yeah. You know, the idea was like, everything is so weird right now. Let's make a couple of movies that feel true to this weirdness that we're all living through. And maybe they'll, you know, maybe they'll only be accessible for for six months while we're in this little weird COVID bubble, or maybe, you know, maybe there'll be something that sticks around. But the idea with Boogeyman it was it was it was really about getting in that primal, fundamental fear and making something that felt a bit more kind of classical, a bit more old fashioned, a bit more, um, and it was also just showing what I could do when I wasn't shooting on an iphone which is which is which is big yeah because i mean i'm sure some people would would think you have limitations even if they don't know you if they've only seen two of your films um i I think you're talking about the primal thing that's when i walked out i remember turning back and saying like i tend to like be in the bag for movies about uh what's in the dark just fear of the dark Mm -hmm. you know basically because because that is when i started to love horror because i was scared of the dark till quite uh quite late you know and that's probably why i watched horror films and i think they they're always i feel like less people are making them at the moment i don't know (laughs) are straying away maybe taking for granted that we have moved past that but i don't think we have i don't think we ever Mm -hmm. do move past that really um i want to say one of the reasons why i think it works though in the movie is i think um vivian lira blair is like mm. I usually find kid performances to take me out of movies or I walk out going, eh, yeah, no, kid's okay. I thought yeah. she was exceptional and, and really yeah. phenomenal. believed yeah. everything she did. Where did you did. find yeah. her? Was that like a casting call that you did for kids? Are yeah. You, where did so, you shoot this for starters? Yeah. Where was your shooting location at? We shot this in New Orleans, although, oh, you know, nice. it's mostly, yeah, which I love. Oh, and, and so it was on location in New Orleans. Yeah. It was, well, we did two weeks of location and the rest was, mm. was all built. We built the houses. Nice. Um, but the the yeah, some of the casting is New Orleans, some of it's Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vivian's part, Sawyer was for the longest time was a, a little boy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a brother and a sister. It was a kind of proper nuclear family, and um, and we were auditioning just like kid after kid, and I just found them all really irritating. Yeah. They were all giving me like Anakin Skywalker vibes, <laughs> and um, and so I was like, you know, I was kind of, I went to the studio and I said, listen, I can count. I can count on one hand and I won't even use all my fingers, the great like male child actor performances in this age range that stick. And like, you know, two of them are Haley Joel Osment. So that's, yeah. you know, I'm going to count it as one. But, but at this age, I think, I think girls are more, I don't know. There's just, there's just something where, you know, I could, I could, I could reel off amazing performances. And I was like, let's open this up to both genders. Let's, um, 
you know, let's 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 see if we can cast a girl Sawyer or just be open to it. And, and then Vivian was one of the first people who came in just totally. She totally nailed the humor of it. She could, you know, she's she's been acting since she was like, you know, tiny. Um, she was in Bird Box as one of the little kids. Oh. And she, so oh, she, can, okay. she can do she can do that. You know, she can switch on and off the fear. Um, but really, and this is like something this is something that's big in the way that I cast movies is. She had she had so much personality just in the in between takes. She was chatting and she was talking about the tooth fairy, and she was just just like she's 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 both a kind of like ancient old soul trapped in a nine year old's body, and is also just she you know she can go from from doing the most intense scene and suddenly you know we call cut and she'll go and start playing with her doll again. Um, well, and that's something that you can't just act right. You, she has a likability. Yeah. Like I like her before she's yeah. even started doing the work because yeah. she has a sense of humor to how she's approaching these these very dark situations where and I really like though so I've you know Sophie since watching Yellow yeah. Jacket's been a fan oh, like yeah. she has to play it a lot more grief stricken and and yes. she can't find her humor probably yet as a character uh yeah. which so you need something to bounce off that so yeah really really just great casting all around it's yeah. a thing it's and it's something that I you know I was like I was amazed by how much I was able to take from doing host and dash cam Mm -hmm. And how many lessons actually Mm -hmm. did translate across. And one of them was like, if you've got, you know, the personality of the cast becomes the personality of the movie to a large extent. And you know, (laughs) I mean it's a large reason why a lot of people don't like Dashcam is because the personality of that movie is Annie's is Annie's like character's personality. But host as well, one of the part of the likability of host is that group of friends. They're a real group of friends and you feel that camaraderie and you feel that humor. And then you feel when the humor ends and they all start turning on each other. And so it was with all of the parts, it was like trying to find that aspect of their own personality that they'd be able to bring. And then we, you know, in a similar, I mean, not nearly as far as host and dash cam, but we were able to improvise and play around with the lines mm-hmm. and all this stuff that I would never expect to be able to do on a studio movie. We're, you know, we were able to work into the, to the, the way we attack these scenes. Now the, the jump scares were ridiculously well orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Like those were like, like next level, like magical jump scares. How much of those were already written that way on the page? And then how much was you kind of getting into the space and then determining what's scary? Because I always find that a lot of times when I'm thinking about it, it's not scary on the page until I'm standing on set. And then I'm like, that's terrifying. Yeah. So the only the only scare scene that remained, because because I spent a lot of time developing this movie in a slightly different direction. I mean, Beckenwoods had laid down this incredible groundwork, but it mm-hmm. was different characters and different story. They, but they kind of locked into the, 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 um, the way to, to kind of build out the short film into a feature. Uh, the only scene that like kind of wholesale exists from their script is one of the best scenes, which is the, the red light therapy scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was there on the page. And that was this, that was the scene that I read and and I was like, well, you know, if if I don't fuck this up, then this is <laughs> this is a great iconic scare scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great visual. Um, but then it was just it from there. It was me working with Mark Heyman, who's who, you know he wrote Black Swan, and he's the guy who 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 wrote the version that ended up on screen. Um, yeah, it was just us really trying to trying to crack those those fundamental primal scares that would mm-hmm. that would that would put you back right back into that feeling of being a scared little kid checking under your bed and it was so it wasn't about it wasn't you know it was like you were saying before Elk. it's like it's not about um 
necessarily reinventing the wheel. It's about taking these these fears that you almost take for granted and trying to make them scary again. Because mm. to be honest, we're we're all kind of scared of the dark still. We just you know oh, yeah. we, we posture and we, we pretend that we're not. But as soon as there's a strange noise that you can't place, you're scared of the dark and you're scared of of what might be lurking there. There's a great guys... um, oh, oh go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. There's a great, there's a passage in the beginning of um, uh, Night Shift in in, in the, the foreword by by King, where he says, you know, we're all adults reading this book. You know, none of us really believe that there's a monster out there. But still, you know, I don't sleep with my foot hanging out the edge of the bed. I put it under the blanket because I know that nothing's going to grab it that way. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, that's why we read, that's why we read horror. Yeah. It's yeah. because uh, we all on some level believe something's going to grab our ankle. And, do you guys um, still sleep with the light on in some capacity? Because I do. I still have a nightlight in the hallway. And if that thing goes out, it's immediately like, where the fuck am I? There was something. What was that? I was watching something recently and I'd smoked way too much weed and I slept with the light on and like that <laughs> and, and was also like scribbling, scribbling down ideas in my notepad at the same time. It's one of the great things about making horror movies is you can like it's. Getting scared out of your mind can be quite useful sometimes. Freaking yourself out. No, I've had those moments. We had this um, in my old house in North Hollywood. I had this giant plate glass window in the front. And a lot of times if I was looking out at it at night and the kitchen light was on behind me, it would catch my reflection and it would look like somebody was standing right on the other side of the glass looking back at me. And yes. it was like the, it happened to me so many times where I would jump scare myself to the point where I'm like, that's going somewhere. It's yeah. just, yeah. I told Becca. Oh, I had a I had a great one last night. I was like, I've just got back from from Vegas. It was the first time I've ever been to Vegas. And we stayed in the big, like, tacky pyramid um, hotel. And I was there and I was looking out the window. And because it's like a slant, you know, it's a pyramid. So it's mm-hmm. a slanted window. You don't, you can't see behind you unless you look up. Oh, and then, that's good. And I was sitting there and I looked Aww. up. And my girlfriend was just like, had crept up behind me. And I suddenly saw there's this figure behind me. I was like, fuck. Oh. Elric, do you right. sleep with a nightlight? I, I don't, but I I was really like bad until you know even into my teens. Wait, like just I felt I, I could be on the street passing, you know, people who are gonna mug you doesn't do scare me at all. But what could be in the darkness, like a ghostly thing, really did. But I was telling Becca right after my scariest moment was I think I was about fifteen or sixteen, and I had a bedroom that was off the main house in the back, kind of it, it was a, like a converted shed almost, you know. And I turn off yeah. my nightlight, go to sleep about thirty minutes in the lights all come on and that's never, and I couldn't even move because I was thinking about it. Have you, I've never seen a horror movie where the lights turn on lights flicker off and you're in darkness. But I was like, it's actually quite terrifying because there's something about the way you switch off a light that there's no way without extreme force to accident. And I, I, to this day, I'm like, how the fuck did that? And so I had to walk across the whole room to turn it back off. And I just couldn't, my heart was like beating through my, so I've got to put that in a movie someday, like the light switching on being the thing that causes terror because no one ever does that. I'm amazed you went to turn it off it again. It took me a while. I, I know. I, I just feel like shit off. it wants yeah, it on, no, it can stay on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might be because it was that. in New Zealand. We're down under. Maybe we're upside down or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> Threw it all the off. The thing <laughs> that I find still, you know, kind of separates everybody is can you sleep with the closet door fully open? Because that's like some next level no. no, no, there is no, I even have those like lame slider closets that we have in like these yeah, 1940s too, yeah. Burbank houses. 
I can't sleep with those open. There's no fucking oh. way. Even a crack. Oh. And I'm like, no, I'm done. It has to Why be risk closed. it. Why risk it, guys? Come on. <laughs> um, I do. It's like there's that there's that line. There's that line from Widnell, Widnell oh, yeah, and Widnell, I, yeah. where they say, you know, it's like there's the, they're the kind of windows that face is looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing with it's the same thing with doors yeah. or closets. Like they're made they're made to have people in them. So yeah. you yes. don't you don't don't have that. They're open. the perfect you size. Just fuck around. Yeah. Um. Um. So I want to ask, and let's tiptoe gently around this so as not to give spoilers but i wanted to ask about kind of the design of the boogeyman himself or yeah. itself because okay it's called the boogeyman we know there's something in there but how what influences did you pull from because that design it's so unique it's so wild and specifically how much was practical and how much was digital because it was really hard to tell oh I, that's that's good because it was all digital there's no wow. no practical in the movie um although i was pushing for it and the, and the fact is we just say we got so far down the line trying to figure out what this thing looked like that it was like two weeks out from shooting before we locked down the design. We went on so many different, so many different roads. And, and I, we, we, we kind of started out with three, there were three stipulations that I gave to the design team and we, we had different designers. I mean, the, the, the design team that ended up kind of landing it was um, this, this amazing designer called Keith Thompson, who did the, um, he did the creature for the ritual and he did. The oh, new that's, incredible and he did the new hellraiser so he's he's you know he's um he's a genius and and so it was him and then our, our vfx team folks who who kind of finished it off but um we had three stipulations which was one you've got to imagine you've got to kind of like get the word boogeyman out of your mind the boogeyman is just the thing that kids they you know kids point in the darkness and say boogeyman that's just the word that they put onto this thing this has to feel like something primordial and ancient you have to imagine this thing stalking caveman around the fire when they when they huddle in their cave it's it's yeah. been around as long as there's darkness so it's it's we you know we only say the word boogeyman once in the movie and it's just it's, wow it's what, it's what the kids what the kids yeah. call out before they die um the second thing is like this thing is this isn't penny this is like the anti pennywise so this isn't something that sees your fears and then does a pantomime version of it this is this is the thing that we have built our fear from so this has to feel like it comes from the human body and this comes from death and this comes from like facing our own mortality. And, and, you know, and this is, this kind of gets, it's a grief movie. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not totally, it's not the Babadook, but it's, it's, it's a movie where this family are going through the loss of, of a family member. And, and so there's an aspect of like confronting death and confronting mortality in this creature. So the other stipulation was um, you have to be able to, to make this creature out of human body parts and you can break them, burn them, contort them into any way you want but it has to have started from something human so um that's interesting so because i didn't want it to look alien i didn't want it to look yeah. like something that, that had fallen from a meteor and then the third thing is like you know when you get sent creature designs you get sent this kind of beautiful 3d you know in the ideal lighting and, and everything i wanted them to also send me a crayon drawing of the creature mm. Uh, because it had to be simple enough that a kid could draw it in a few, you know, crayon strokes and you kind of got it. You got what the kind of boiled down version was because um, it had to feel simple and fundamental enough that people could still project their own boogeyman onto it, their own fear of what's in the dark. And, and I, you know, and I knew that I was only really going to shoot it, it alien style with little glistening highlights and the, mm -hmm. the you know, the, the cat's eyes from the dark. Um 
Well, that's so, yeah, that's the we, key, though. I mean, it's that. like I think the reason it worked for me compared to some other recent ones is because of how long it exists in the darkness. I think it's mm-hmm. so important to keep it in the dark, but still see bits of it as long as possible because you only get a li- you can only really survive a little bit of time completely visible. And and I think you really charted yeah. that really well because it's just super effective seeing just eyes peering out or some sort of flickering movement. I th- the video game scene I think was just brilliant. Like that to me felt like something that only you know. Some somebody where exactly what what you had done previously could have probably pulled off a sequence like that if yeah that makes sense just there's something youthful and clever and very and of the moment which i thought was great but um i did want to ask you about we that actually, loss oh sorry go go on oh we, we actually had just just on the on the like screen time for boogie we had in the edit suite a running total of the the amount of frames that the boogeyman was in mm. we had that up on the whiteboard and then we had the amount of frames that the alien is in alien and the amount of frames that the shark is in Jaws. And that we're... is, oh my gosh. And the studio let you do that because the biggest thing yeah. that I've encountered a lot of times is we need more monsters. More monsters. Like That's they what think I that more monster will make it scarier. And in actuality, it actually makes it less scary because the more you see the monster, the less scary it immediately becomes. Totally. They were cutting, they they were they were pushing me to cut more shots. I mean, they were they were great on that. But we en- we ended up with we're a second less of our boogie than there is the shark in Jaws and we're a second and a half less than the alien in Alien. Oh, interesting. So we've got less than either of those movies. Nice. I mean, it feels like it feels like more, I think, because it's CG and because it's... You know, well, the alien, when I think of Alien, I think of it as very little scene, you know, but in the last act, it feels like we see a lot. The last act. We see a lot yeah. of it in full body. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, because people use that. I Everyone hates the term elevated horror, obviously, now. But I think one of the problems, what people mistake, mistook about it, that there's something there which was about uh, mistaking just drama. Like horror films can have great drama in them and also have horror. And a lot of people took that as some sort of slight, I think. But I think that's actually where yeah. if you look at the top 20 horror films of all time, they all have this quality, which is they're mm-hmm. interesting. If you took out the horror, there's interesting drama. There's yeah. inter- And I, I heard you on um, Josh and Joe's show talking about ordinary people. And that was a yeah. nice surprise because... Uh, I, I I didn't think about it while I was watching it, but as soon as you st- mentioned that film, I was like, oh, silent grief that's super internalized and no one knows how to communicate, right? So yeah. they're all shut down. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that was something, I think that's one of the keys to making this more than just, you know, I've heard you talk about the jumps and 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 loving it as an audience movie, but I do think there's more there. I, I think that's the, why it's strong is because there is this the seed of what uh, real families struggle to talk about the most obvious shit. And yeah. it just gets deeper and deeper. But I mean, yeah. maybe mention ordinary people again, because I think a lot of people probably are still mad at it for beating Elephant Man and Raging Bull the year it won the Oscar. <laughs> like I did when I was a kid. I hated it. And then I grew up. My love parents it. loved that movie. And I remember them it's... making me watch it that year. And I was like four and thought it was terrible. And I have never seen it. it. Because I was, yeah, it's, it was just awful so, it, for four years. It'll year resonate old. now as an adult yeah. in ways that will be almost too much. It's almost too much. And I mean, not because it's not subtle. It's it will fucking tear you in half. That's how powerful yeah, it is I, now. But as a young person, yeah. I didn't care for it. Like 15, 16, I was like, Raging Bull is so much better. I watch it now. It's yeah. better than Raging Bull. It's it's yeah. a powerful movie. I, I agree. And I'm the biggest Scorsese yeah, fan. Me too, but yeah. I, but I, I, get, I get so much of Ordinary People. And I, I, it's a movie that I watch a lot. And there's... There's a scene that really especially resonates with me from ordinary mm. people, which is which is um oh, what's the uh what's the guy? What's the, what's the, the, the Hutton, yeah, Timothy Hutton is 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 
talking to to you know his his cheerleader friend who's like the popular girl who's kind of condescending to talk to him and she's she's being real with him and he's kind of starting to open up to her about um the death of his brother and they're both kind of almost like transcending the roles that they play he's the kind of bookish dweeb and she's the she's the popular girl and then just as he's about to open up for the first time in the movie and you've seen him just be on the cusp of 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 speaking you know, speaking to this tragedy, all the jocks come in and suddenly she has to put on her cheerleader, you know, facade again. She's like, oh, hey, Bobby, how you doing? And, and he suddenly like shrinks back inside of himself. And it's this like, it's just this devastating moment that speaks to how scary it is to 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 open yourself up. And that was, you know, it was a scene that we spoke about a lot in this movie, that this movie was really you know, it's wearing the skin of a grief, a grief movie, and you can see the monster as a grief demon and and all that stuff. But it's really, it's a movie about talking. It's the, the guy's a therapist, and and Lester Billings, the David Dasmalchian's character, comes in, um, not necessarily seeking anything other than to be listened to and understood. You know, in, in he's he's in the third act of his own horror movie, just just trying to connect with somebody in his last moments, and um, it's. Uh, you know, so so you when we were talking about this movie, when we were developing the movie, when I was talking to the actors, it was all about what you what you leave unspoken, what you suffer through alone, festers and becomes um you know, a spawning ground for something for something monstrous like this creature. The creature's not the creature's not necessarily a phantom of grief, but it's a phantom of of um of of what's repressed but they would still have that problem i mean because everyone's having to play a role i think i think movies where people grief grief sometimes knocks you out of being able to continue to play your role that you're meant to play which is being bad strong dad strong Mm -hmm. mother strong suddenly you're unable to function i think this character christmasina is like you know therapist great can can talk to anyone cannot talk to his children Mm -hmm. because he is shut down because he doesn't know how to play the role anymore and and i think that's something that that film has in common because if you you know for i know we might be on a tangent for people who are on a horror show but if you watch ordinary (laughs) people and think about it as a ghost story it's it is a this is what what where our ghost stories come from is loss and when people are all talking about one central figure it means there's a ghost haunting that family it just might yeah, not be yeah. some a ghost you see it's, it's so you know i think that i think it's really worth people looking at if they if they dig your movie maybe yeah. it's a good way to connect to yeah. it you know totally and while we're while we're pissing off people on this podcast <laughs> let me just let me sh- let me show you something that they won't be able to see so i got this made for all the cast and crew at the end of the movie well, to give people a play-by-play, he's walking through his. Apartment. He's like he's do- he's basically oh, filming host right he, now on Zoom because he sh- he's walking through his apartment. Yes, it's an ordinary people poster from afar. I can't see close enough. But it's, but it's actually oh nice. You, you see that? Oh wow! It's the it's the boogeyman. He's put the family it's inside the, the original boogeyman. That's really cool. Oh That's a, that, a, that is. That is really tight. It's the boogeyman poster as ordinary people poster. Yeah, no, so. that's really clever. That's really uh, cool. D- you did mention the short. You 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 know you were meaning the short story a few minutes ago, but you actually said film. And back in the day, oh, yeah. we had um, we had a little place in the valley called Jump Cut Cafe, and we yeah. had the original boogeyman short film on film on sixty mil. Yeah, actually it played there, and and. I, I'm oh, curious if you'd ever seen the, you know, but prior, if you would actually see well, I think it's the first dollar baby, maybe. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, good. Yeah, it's it's really the oh, scene, it, it obviously is. the one scene. That... Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is good. It is good. Uh, you know, and I, I like I, I think filmmakers always try and pretend that they don't watch this stuff when they're prepping a movie. They're like, oh, I didn't watch it because I didn't want it to get in my head. And I watched all of that stuff. I yes. watched that. I watched that a, bu- a bunch of times. And 
No, it's 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 well yeah, done. Sure. I I think I don't know yeah. if people can even see it. I'm not sure if it's easy. Yeah. To... I think it's on you. I watched it on YouTube. Okay. So the big question that I'm sure you've been asked a bajillion times is: Did you get to interact with King on this? Like, did he weigh in? Did he watch, you know, assembly cuts or anything like that? Like, how involved was he in the process? He was lovely. He was so, you know, in the spirit of the Dollar Babies, he wanted us to be able to feel like we could come take this and make it our own thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, he was he was he was reading. He read a couple of drafts of the script. He gave some great notes. He kind of gave us his blessing on the shooting draft before we went into battle to go and shoot it. But he did he did um, the loveliest thing, which is he, he was he was taking around his um, uh, I can't remember what his, his latest novel was, but he was on the circuit kind of promoting that. And every now and then he would just shout out about our script and how excited he was for the movie. He would say, you know, he was like he was talking about the boogeyman as being a great example of like taking a short story and justifying um you know, the length of, of building it out and how it was, it was one of the ones that did it right. And, he, you know, we were, we were getting occasionally these little um, notices from, from King's press tour while we were shooting. And it was such a nice, you know, he's, he's somebody who knows the weight his words carry and he yeah. uses it. He uses it for good. You know, he's always shouting out indie films and indie filmmakers and, and TV shows. And um so I, you know, I'd be able to like read these quotes from Stephen King to the to the crew when we were having a a, a particularly exhausted day, and it would it would push us through. And then he uh, he wasn't involved; he wasn't watching rushes. I mean, I'm sure they got sent to him. He didn't he didn't comment on them. I think he's it's all available to him. I think if he wants it, um, but he didn't see anything till we we're almost locked. We showed him the second preview cut, which which had just tested really well. I was really happy with it. It still had a lot of, you know, had like a stop motion uh, uh, animatic for the creature. Nothing was, nothing was finished, and um, and he just sent the loveliest uh, like essay almost about how much he loved wow. the movie, how much how much it had, it had scared him, and he shouted out the different, you know, he knows enough about the process to shout out the different departments, the art, you know, the art department and the editing and the, the and um, and then he emailed me again the next day, being like, I'm still thinking about your movie. I'd love to find something else to work on, and and we've been we've been chatting and virtually chatting. I still haven't met him, but he's, uh, he's been lovely throughout this whole process. He, he, wow. he sent me another lovely message on opening weekend. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's watching over. So, now- oh, well, what, yeah, let's, let's ask about what the influence of King was on that, on you then, because some people it's the books, but a lot of our generation, it was the films the before movies. the books, you know, adaptations of his work. Yeah. What was it for you? Because I mean, for eighties kids, we had a three Kings movies a year for yeah. most of the eighties. Yeah. So, yeah. It, a lot of it, a lot of it was, was the movies and a lot of it was, it was kind of like ping ponging between because I was, I was, I was growing up, not really being able to watch scary movies. My parents were very strict on that. They, you know, they, I was banned from reading King or anything too scary. And and especially from watching anything too scary or violent, so I would hear the titles of these movies that I would want to that I would want to um, watch. I would hear Carrie and The Shining and Pet Cemetery, and so those were the first books that I dived into. You know, because I couldn't get my hands on the movies, or because I'd watch the movies, I'd be able to sneak the movies at a friend's house, and then I'd, to to relive that terror, I'd I'd go through the books. But really, before that, it was the short stories because I had a tiny attention span as a kid, and so, short, you know, the really kind of garishly violent ones like like the Mangler or Trucks mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, those kind of like attention grabbing, 
short stories that would be in like Playboy, where he's got to like distract you from all the nudie pictures with something so um, kind of splashy. Those would be the ones that I was drawn to first, and so it was it was um, it was Night Shift and and um, uh, Skeleton Crew and and a lot of those short story books. I'd get kind of dog-eared copies and and read through those and freak myself out. So to be clear, your parents were like, no horror films, but here's Playboy. Go crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which well, is I great. Just, that's very found, UK of you. A healthy young man. Found them underneath my dad's bed. Oh, like I every yeah, okay, bed. got it. <laughs> no, those short stories messed me up. Like, you know, when I started reading King, it was pulling them. My parents both read King. My mom, like, burned through everything King. Mm. Even if it was like a Richard Bachman, she was going to have yeah. that too. And I started with the short stories because they were so accessible. And I remember reading, and it's weird because it's never going to be made to screen. The Lawnmower Man one fucked me up. Isn't that and scary? It was because he eats the gopher and then he leaves like the intestines in the bird bath. That shit, I must have read that story four different times because just the idea of the man turning green and the, yeah. the whole act of it, like it was just so. It borderline Clive Barkered for me with yeah. how transformative that one was. And of course, the actual Lawnmower Man is nothing like that. But yeah, uh-huh. it's, that short story was just mind blowing for me. Yeah. And I think there's a kind of there's a there's a real nastiness to those early short stories, mm-hmm. which and especially the Boogeyman. I mean, the Boogie, like, the, you know, the Lester Billings character in the Boogeyman is is just this this deplorable piece of work who who you couldn't. Uh, you'd be you'd be making a very different statement if you transposed that Lester Billings onto screen yeah. nowadays, and we didn't want this to be. That wasn't the story we wanted to tell. You know, this is a yeah. story about being being listened to and understood, and this wanted to be somebody who was reaching out as opposed to somebody who was who was argumentative and shut down and and um, you know, resistant resistant to the therapy. Um, but there, yeah, there's this kind of like nastiness of the short stories, but also the the there's a kind of there's a hope and a humanity to the to the king novels and to the king body of work that we also wanted to to speak to yeah and so you know we we a lot of you know most of this movie is not is not king it's us building from king but we were always trying to check back into those movies and those books and and just make sure that this would you could watch it you could do a king marathon and this would sit happily with those with those other like flavor a bit of a flavor of king versus a straight exactly. adaptation all right so uh forget the, the entire filmography of king adaptations you get you get two of them what are the what are the two that you couldn't yeah. live without that are for you were the the two best for you not objectively oh, okay. well, not objectively just king adapt. no 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 just well so 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 um Obviously, The Shining, but not. Yeah. Here's the thing. So i i I grew up I grew up on The Shining as one of my favorite movies, and then I took a friend to see The Shining. Last time I was in London, the BFI were playing it, and I took them to see it. And it was the American cut, which I guess is the one that you guys had had grown up on. I mean, I don't know which one you got, Alric, but the, the, I, the I had the shorter American. one that had yes. less shots of. Mm-hmm. Um, of what's a, a scant man in Florida yeah. hanging out and looking at pictures of a uh, sexy woman and naked women yeah. above his bed. Yeah. It's, got, yeah. it's got like a, it's got like what, what seems like a 20 minute sequence of him ordering a rental car. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, so, so that's the international, right? The, the shorter version. That's the, the shorter version is the internet. Yeah. Right. The European. So I'm like you, I've yeah. seen that a million times and yeah. it's my favorite movie of all time. And then the one yeah. time I went to a Kubrick thon and they played the longer I was out of it. It was. It took me out of all those scenes. I was shocked. Really? I, was completely I would. Shocked. I would say. 
I would say I would say it actually no maybe this is a bit extreme but it's like it, it it's not it's not a good movie in that form yeah, it's it's, like, it's a it's, different it's thing baggy and it's 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 it like it doesn't it just doesn't work and it's actually you see you can see a lot of the the there's a kind of like student film quality to some of it you know the the, the there's a lot of you know the, the, like I used to I used to teach I used to teach evening classes back when I was broke in, in London. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was always like getting on my students' cases about was like shots of people walking from A to B. You just get these like montages of people walking <laughs> or buying their groceries, all the stuff that you don't need in the movie. There's so much of that in the American yeah. cut. I mean, I get that he was like enamored by the steady cam, but there's just these shots of Shelley Duval walking, looking really uncomfortable. Like she doesn't know what she's doing. And and it it's just well, the other version is also perfect. Rails the movie. The other version the was other like version is just perfect and thing, yeah, elliptical, yeah. And it's also, <clears throat> I feel like all all the stuff that doesn't work in the American cut is all the stuff where he's, uh, he's like kind of condescending to do bits of King and tell tell King's story. You know, the the idea that Jack is, um, two years sober or what, whatever they they kind of talk about in the preamble whereas in the european cut you just get right to it and you kind of get a sense that he's um you know he's had this episode before where he's hurt his kid but you don't really talk about the alcoholism it's all kind of like inferred and and spoken around like everyone's being kind of careful when they're talking about it and it's it's it makes you lean in as opposed to just giving you the information at the beginning of the movie and it 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 because because the you know the problem with the american cut is you have all this stuff about well he's you know he's healthy now he's sober he's been clean and then you cut to Jack Nicholson acting like a lunatic and you're like that guy is there's something wrong with that guy. Yeah, and, but that's supposed to be that his wife is kind of making excuses for him. Okay, so I'm gonna say no, I've no, no, probably man, yeah, yeah. I've probably only ever seen the American cut and y'all cry. Um, no, but so, this is exciting. Yeah. This means we have to get the other version and see what you think because I know yeah, I, I I can't underestimate the never... fact that we're both saying this from different parts of the world means there's something there because because it was a shock to me. Like I was like literally wow. sitting there going, why don't I feel the same as I have 50 other times? It's yeah. weird. I venture to say I've only seen the American cut because I don't remember a movie where there wasn't the explanation of his alcoholism, where Scatman Brothers didn't have like the crazy nudie pictures behind him, where there wasn't. There's a, a bit. There's a bit of. Car but, scene. but there's a lot yeah. more in this version. A lot more following with him, and you know, it's but it, but it reminds you of how delicate um, movies are with what you shoot for. Like the other great examples is that we've only learned in the last couple of years is seeing all the extras on the Blue Velvet disc which was fascinating because there's about like i don't know it's an hour that they reconstruct as a narrative of the scenes that didn't make it into blue velvet and uh what's so hypnotic about watching it is how dull it is and how and and you're like this is why this isn't in the movie because you didn't need to know about his college girlfriend and he goes visits Mm -hmm. her at college scenes that never needed to be in the movie and that's why the movie's perfect but if you had added even two of those it might have been off you know it's like alchemy I will be the first to stand up and say, I'm sure when I do watch the international cut, I'm going to be like, oh, this is so much nicer because I have yet to watch a movie where there is a short version and a long version. And Mm -hmm. I did not gravitate towards the short version. I am always the one who's like, feed me less, but feed me it quickly. And unless they cut out all the gore or something, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That that can't happen. That's different. Blade Runner. Anytime that it's like, we've now got the two and a half hour director's cut. I'm always going to want the 90 minute theatrical, like every single time. So yeah. Completely. 
Yeah. But I wanted to ask about that because this was not originally intended to do like a giant theatrical release, Mm -hmm. was it? So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of where it was and then the test screening, like the success of the test screening is what pushed it forward. It was, um, yeah, it was meant to be a Hulu movie, which, you know, like no filmmaker really makes a film for, for a TV. You always make it with a big screen in mind, but I kind of, I, I kind of just went into this imagining that if we didn't fuck it up too bad with with this title, with King, you know, that that there'd, there'd be a chance that we could do a smile or a barbarian. And, that you know, there's there's in the last couple of years, there's a framework that, that hopefully, you know, if you if you. You know, if everything lines up in your favor, you can you can um, end up on on the big screen. And so we tested the movie. It was uh, it was the movie was pretty close to what we in terms of the shape of the movie. It was pretty close to what's on screen. Um, I did this thing. I I had um, like six weeks director's cut or whatever it was. It was like six weeks. I think normally you got eight. I get six. I got six. It was a Hulu movie, and I wanted to make sure you know this being my first studio movie. I wanted to make sure that when the studio saw it, it was it was as polished as possible. I could defend every choice in it and. So I I asked the studio if every week of my director's cut, I could bring in two random strangers to sit and watch the movie with me. And so they, they the, the stipulation was they couldn't be in the film industry and they had to sign an NDA. So we got a couple of people every week. They came in and I, I mean, literally, they watched my first assembly. The first time I saw this movie was with two random strangers. <laughs> wow. And it was excruciating but so how did you find them just like pulling randos off the you know chandler bike path in bourbon they were yeah (laughs) they were um it was like friends of people at the studio or friends of the the um the assistants who were who were there working in the edit suite and um you know it's amazing i mean i mean you guys know you can sit there and you they don't even need to say anything but you can feel all the bad decisions yes just, just being in a room with two you know objective strangers and so we did six mini test screenings before the studio even saw it and i knew by the you know by the by the last couple of screenings everything was working pretty well and um that was the version pretty much that we that we previewed the problem was you know we've got 750 vfx shots in this movie it's like it's loaded with vfx um invisible and not invisible and and um none of that was done so we had like a stop motion uh creature that i thought was just going to completely devastate us that the the audiences would just laugh at and i was watching through my fingers um but luckily all of the really crappy creature work was in the last 10 minutes of the movie and the audience was so with it and so terrified that by the end when that first awful creature stop motion shot came on screen nobody laughed and it was it, it it was one of those i mean both of the test screens we did too they were it's that kind of those kind of screenings that you only get a few times in your career like every every scare worked people screamed people laughed people stood up and cheered at the moment mm-hmm. that i'm pretty sure those guys stood up and cheered in your screening and it just it was clear that everything was was landing pretty squarely the part where the blonde girl yeah. bullies the other girl I'm, I'm, yes, just, wait, what? <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. It's like just a generic high school oh, no. moment. Where I, I grow, no. Mean girl moment. <laughs> the uh, the the come up the comeuppance yeah, moment, yeah, no, no, standing thing. And um, 
and uh, you know, and the, and the studio were there. And the, from that moment on, there was kind of just a background hum of of uh, you know. And I I I I had the movie to finish, so I didn't really get into it. But it was kind of happening in the background. And um, then we did a second test screening, which tested which tested even higher, and and all the same moments worked afresh. And uh, it was. Yeah, and 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 I kind of knew from that point that it was going to go theatrical. I didn't find out until until the the top of this year. I found out I found out in January, and um, and then as soon as as soon as uh, we got the we got the news back going theatrical, I managed to twist the studio's arm and and get the final finishing thing for the movie, which is we put it onto thirty five mil, and then oh, we nice. it. So it's 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 what you're seeing on screen is actually chemical it's actually a 35 mil cool. print it's been re-digitized but it just added that final um you know kiss to the movie that 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 that, that especially with the vfx kind of tied it all together beautifully yeah. uh what about uh we're going to talk a little bit about haunted house films uh because you know i, well, I love a good haunted house film i just yeah. realized i never got a second king oh film. okay you said the oh, shining oh. and well, then no, we were so, off hopefully it's a haunted house so I, would, <laughs> so I would say it's not but but the 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 Shining would have been my number one, you know, kind of boring, but but like objectively yeah. best Stephen King movie. And it probably is maybe objectively the best Stephen King movie, the European cut. But um, no, maybe not. Because because the other day I went to the new Bev for the midnight screening of Carrie, which I hadn't seen in 10 years. And I remember, you know, I remembered the stuff that you remember. I remember the split screen and the the, the hall on fire and, and, and the crucifixion. I didn't remember just how perfect every aspect of that movie is. I didn't remember how compassionate, how funny, how beautifully um, performed it is. It, it's 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 gone it's gone like right up to the top of my list of King adaptations, but also Brian De Palma movies. It, it, it's like one of my favorite filmmakers. It's also, and I think one of the reasons you might have a reaction like that because I felt similarly because when I was younger, I was like, I liked it. It's mm. the designed for a big screen because the use of yes. split screen and these some of the camera designs. He he's not intending you to ever see this on television. It's intent yeah. and the shining is kind of the same, even though it works on TV. But but Carrie, it just was transformative seeing it on a big screen, especially the last sequence. You realize it's one of the great sequences ever shot in a film. You know, it's just yeah. so perfectly and hallucinogenic almost at times. And I was yeah, yeah. I was like in tears watching it That's at the so end. Cool, just, yeah. just just the spectacle of it. Um, but it was, you know, and I remembered that stuff being really cool. It, it hit me, it hit me so much harder on the big screen. But it was also just the the quiet moments, the sissy SpaceX performance, yeah, the the and the humor of it. You know, the the humor and the 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 control that De Palma has in every aspect. And I think now there's a kind of like characterization of De Palma as being somebody who's very good at set pieces, but maybe not so good at the, at the like the tonality of performance or of, of um, uh, who maybe lets, lets other aspects slide in favor of these bombastic set pieces. But this is just perfectly calibrated across the board. It feels like he's, he's holding you by the hand and taking you through this movie and you're in the, the hands of a total master. Yeah. And, and, um, and helped put King on the map. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. This yeah. film is part of like part of that, that surge for both of them was that that particular movie. Okay, so what's the other one? Or is Shining yeah, so the other one, or is there a second? Or shining no, that's the, yeah, Carrie. Shining, shining, shining and Carrie. Okay, so I think I'm and, trying to think what would cemetery, be... Pet Cemetery, Pet Cemetery Two. I'm trying to think Pet what, Cemetery yeah. Two or Pet Cemetery as well. That's a Joe Begas answer. Pet Cemetery Part Two. 
Yeah. <laughs> part two. Part two is a Joe Biga's favorite, I believe. Uh, I but it. I think a lot of those movies, it's like whichever was your favorite when you're young, you'll, you get, you get to a certain point and then you see Dead Ringers, uh, not Dead Ringers, you see uh, Dead Zone again and you're like, holy yeah. shit. Or you'll see Christine. I remember seeing Christine and going, this is a perfect fucking movie. Yeah. But when I was young, I was like, yeah. So, you know, I yeah. see. I never. I haven't seen Dead Ringers since I was ten, and I or Dead Zone. Think, dead Zone again. Dead Zone. <laughs> sorry, you said yeah. it. You went to you Dead it. Ringers okay, with yeah. me not long ago. I did it. I did it. Um. So yeah, no, I've seen Dead Ringers <laughs> like last year with you. Um. Yeah. But Dead Zone, I haven't seen it since I was ten, watching it with my parents, and yeah, yeah I didn't hit with me at the time. It was just like it's okay. Yeah. Um. I feel like I should revisit that. Like yeah, I watched I the TV a show a it's little so, bit. But, it's yeah. so the tone is. It's one of the best Cronenberg films. It's weird. Like when you go get to it, you realize Cronenberg's another one of those guys who you love his weird independent stuff. But when he did something for a studio like that and the fly, he's top tier. Like when he's working in that way. And I think Dead Zone is one of the ones that's like kind of most holds up. It's very unnerving. It's just got a tone for today that feels very apt. Yeah. Um, But anyway, you're totally you're totally dead on about Christine as well. And it's a similar thing. Like I'm obsessed with with John Carpenter and he's made so many great movies around that movie that that I I kind of watched it when I was binging all those movies back when I was a teenager. And it was like, "Ah, it's cool. You know, there's, there's some scenes in it that I thought were, were really, you know, that stuck with me, but I watched it a couple of years ago, I guess pre pandemic 2019. I saw it on the big screen at Prince Charles in London and it just blew me away. It's like this immediately shot to like, Top five, if yeah. not top three, John Carpenter. That's what's so rad about well, movies. <laughs> like they just yeah, change yeah, as yeah. we change. And they a movie you're like, ah, middling Carpenter, middling King. And then it's like, oh no, this is brilliant, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think the, the scene where Christine rebuilds herself might be the best scene here. One of the sure. greatest things ever wow. put on film. It's just like yeah. unreal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned going to screenings in London, you were just at an Argento retrospective there, correct? I was. I was. The- so yeah, what did you see and kind of what was your takeaway? Because <clears throat> I assume it wasn't your first rodeo with Argento. No. Oh, no. I mean, Argento was like foundational for me. It was, it mm-hmm. was, it was, you know, it, kind of boringly. I started with Hitchcock like everyone does. And then uh, I remember reading something about they were comparing Hitchcock to That's Bird my other, Crystal just Blue. Just my other wall, which is all Hitchcock posters over there. Oh, yeah, all yeah, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, the, the way that I basically taught myself how to put a scene together was by watching Psycho and like recreating scenes from Psycho. Cause you just, you, you know, it's one of those movies where it, you first time you watch it, it makes you feel a certain way. And then you can go back and you can, you can pick apart the choices he makes in the camera and the blocking and figure out how he gets there. It's almost like a math equation. It's just, it's amazing. And, and then Argento is like the kind of um, violent splashy kind of neon version of that. Uh, but I, I started with Bird of the Crystal Plumage because I think I read something. I read a quote, a Hitchcock quote, where he was saying that that Italian that Italian fellow is making me nervous. Was his quote yeah. coming out of Bird of the Crystal Plumage? So That's I like, great. I, I got to watch this. Um, and so I was obsessed with with Argento for the longest time. Um, and I think you know I was obsessed with him when I was really. Uh, figuring out what the camera could do, yeah. which is which is the you know that's that's the the that's the way to watch to watch Argento. Like he he is a filmmaker who sometimes can be accused of falling down in in other aspects. Well, you like De Palma. You were talking about him and De Palma. They both show, yes. Hitchcock acolytes who both show with the camera. Their show don't tell people. Yeah, and you know that's a great way to learn. Yeah, com- completely. And and uh, 
so you know so Suspiria was Suspiria is a huge movie for me a lot mm-hmm. of his like um more grounded kind of jallo stuff like Tenebrae and, and um Bird of the Crystal Plumage which still is probably my favorite Bird of the Crystal Plumage but what surprised you um, now like like obviously what you grew up with, but watching them right now was there any that stood up or put up their hand differently mm-hmm. well the one that what the one that really the one that, that I've that I've always admired but never found terrifying was Suspiria. Like I've always just I mean and maybe I because I was so bowled over by the 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 craft and the design of it, because it's so apparent, it's so in your face. Um and I went to see that and I had I had taken mushrooms before I went to see it. So that was like that was that changed the experience. But I remember getting into that, you know, the 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 tagline for that movie is like, you know, the only thing scarier than than the first. No, the only thing scarier than the minutes. last yeah. than the last uh, twenty minutes is the is the is the first eighty, yeah. which is which is a really shitty tagline when you yeah, think yeah. about it because it yeah. means that the movie gets like less scary at the end. But um, the the opening the opening sequence when she's running through the woods, being pursued by this thing, and almost being pursued by Argento's camera, and this kind of like this amazing score, yeah, yeah, this kind of like pounding like black magic ceremonial music mm-hmm. um like i was watching that and i just felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest and 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 like had to had to to kind of box breathe to, to calm myself down and just like the 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 intensity and the sustained intensity of that movie really bowled me over mm. but um but you got to do yeah. opium and watch phenomena because we've done every other drug and watched a movie tonight. Yeah. I was like peyote a- buttons I- and inferno. <laughs> yeah. That was the one actually. Um, Elric and I went to. I don't even think it was a retrospective, but we went to see Inferno oh, in right, thirty-five yeah. at the Egyptian, Beautiful. probably oh. two years ago. And that was one that I had never really thought of as terrifying. Like I just, it was always like the lesser Suspiria for me. And seeing it, like there was so much in that that I found completely captivating, like the underwater yeah. scene, the rats, and the, the ending. Hands, the the ending was so fucking gross, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, the hands. Death, yeah. By, death by cats. Yeah, yeah. There was so much in it that I had completely kind of not even connected with before, but then seeing it on the screen, it was like, oh my god, this is great. Yeah. No, it's another one where just on the it's a different experience on the big screen. The one that the one that I remembered. As I, when I was when I was a teenager, it was my favorite Argento movie. I'm not sure I count it as it now, but it was opera. Yeah, which mm-hmm. I to see on the big screen, which is which is I think like it's probably his best executed movie on a technical level, and probably up there with his silliest movies <laughs> in terms of in terms of in terms of everything else. It's like he he. And he's kind of in that, you know, he's in that kind of, you know, tree hugging. I'm just going to lie in the grass and talk to the insects phase of his career, yeah. which he just kind of bleeds over into the in the end. But the 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 kills and the set pieces and the scale and the the all the stuff he does with the crane, the kind of raven point of view, mm-hmm. and his ability to still focus on a central image that will still fuck you up, like the idea of the the thing on the eyes, the eyes being held yes. open, and then oh. Stendhal even has a couple moments like that. Like the whole movies yeah. might not always be perfect, but there'll always be some image. That is like Hitchcock's perverted fantasy, right? Hitchcock would have yeah, loved to have yeah. done these things, but Argento gets to actually execute them. Even yes. even in some of his lesser films, there's yeah. always that one moment that I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I can't, like trauma. Yeah. Trauma, it's a middling film, yeah. except for one moment where you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. And yeah. then, it, yeah, it's so he always has that one. 
Maybe not well, in some of his more recent yes. stuff, but yeah. Sleep, Sleepless still has one of my top Argento kills, the flute, the flute yeah. murder. At the at the beginning. There's quite a lot of good oh, yeah. stuff in that one. It's a little long and uh, you know a little dry, mm-hmm. but but I agree. Sleepless is like one of the most watchable late Argento yeah. films. Yeah. But I'm glad we got to at least Definitely. fit in Argento with you because yeah. we discussed that and we all love him. And uh, well, we don't want to take too much of your time because I know yeah I know you're busy. Uh, before you depart, do you want to mention a because we didn't really get to talk about haunted house film? You get to give one wreck to the listeners, one haunted, one haunted house, house wreck. wreck to leave, and it can't be oh. the innocence because I already know you how much you love that movie. Oh, I've heard you talk about the and the direction of that movie is nearly perfect too. But yeah, I think that's the best horror movie ever made. Um, and and probably everyone talks about Lake Mungo in your podcast. No, no, we don't get a lot of. We talk oh, about okay. that one yeah. a lot on our Patreon show. Deep but not cuts, here. But I haven't heard about it. Does not get before. enough love. You can always give more love to Lake mm-hmm. Mungo. Oh, okay. Well, Lake Mungo, I think is is Lake Mungo. I think is like one of the. It's like maybe top ten horror movies of all time. Mm. I think it's one of I the agree. great. The one of the great horror debuts. I think it's. Um, I think it's it's one of those movies where the first time you watch it the first couple of times it's the most terrifying thing and then as you start to as you start to peel back the horror you realize that it's just the most deeply sad melancholy Mm. movie Mm -hmm. about about loneliness and kind of the impossibility of ever knowing another human being and and uh and especially the loneliness of being a teenager it nails that in such a perfect way and and it, it was a movie that really crystallized for me watching it during lockdown um you know the idea of um the idea of the idea of a character who who knows who knows in her soul that she's 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 about to face her own death and she's going to do it alone and there's nothing that anyone else can do yeah. the kind of tragedy of that um which we're you know that's and that's the that's the that's the really scary truth underneath Blake Mungo is that we're all going to we're all you know we're all we're all facing that yeah. and it's the thing that nobody wants to talk about and it's it's for me it's like it's the most perfect movie about the impossibility of true truly knowing another person and true connection which is you know it's another one that it's another one that was a reference for boogie that scene the scene oh sorry the scene oh the scene, no the scene especially i got the, the cast to watch this there's without ruining it but you know you know you'll know what i'm talking about the scene where um, you see the mum's sleep therapy and you realize that she's you realize how it's marrying up with with what you've seen of of the of the daughter and her description of her own dreams and that idea of um of being present in the same space with somebody but missing them or missing the experience mm-hmm. that they're going through and that, that was kind of like a template for how these characters are moving through the house in Boogeyman that they're physically there in the same space but they're they're um you know, they're emotionally, they're on their own islands, not seeing each other. Yeah. No, that one, it's so haunting. If you guys have not, if uh, listeners, if you have not seen Lake Mungo, this is great. It is such Mm. just an amazing, quiet, just um, scary, haunting film. And it is one of those where you have to sit with it for a day or two and Mm. then it hits. And actually I had Googled just, it came up like two days ago. And I had Googled what the director from Lake Mungo had done since Lake Mungo. And the answer is not a lot in the directing space, but he's one of the producers on David Dalsmalchian's new film, Late Night with he the is. Devil. So I'm, I'm just I'm, excited to to see that now. I'm I was talking to David about that the other day. I was like, how because this guy is like a, a ghost. He disappeared mm-hmm. after that movie. I think he decided to go off and do something else with his life for a little mm-hmm. bit. And um 
and David somehow has has roped him into to working on this new movie, which I'm yeah. seeing t- tomorrow. I think. I think, Wednesday. Oh, I think we're gonna this this awesome. conversation is leading us. We're gonna have to get him on the show and find out what happened. What's up? Yeah, like Mungo cast. Hear about it. Let's do it. He's he's so, the best. Before we lose you, Rob, do you have anything else coming up that you can talk about? What do you attack? I'm sure you can't say much, but yeah, we're gonna ask. Uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of cool stuff that I just that I can't talk about, but um, uh, no, I'm there's a couple of, couple of my short films that's that, that I'm that I'm adapting to features, Dawn of the Deaf and and Salt. You know, nice. one of those one of those might be the next ones. To, to go i'm trying on every podcast to just mention the fact that i really want to adapt the langoliers which is another one of my favorite uh stephen king short stories that is a fucking baller move and it needs it i mean like i i was one of the few people who actually enjoyed the langoliers tv series when it's fun it hit me at such a weird time and i found it fun and at the time everybody was like knee jerking against the weird digital space pac-man um but i remember kind of finding them fun i remember being in high school when it came out and watching it with my family and it just being like this is creepy the way that the heels click it's different and something's weird and it's a it's such a it's a it's such a cool world to to build on and i think you know it's one of the few great stephen king stories that hasn't had a definitive adaptation or anything anything close to a definitive adaptation and and uh and I messaged King about it, and King is really excited about the idea. Mm. We just there's a rights thing that's maybe a bit tangled, but but yeah. So I'm putting that out to the universe. All nice. right, sounds good. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, listeners. If you at home have not seen Boogeyman yet, get your butts to the theater right now and see it while it's there because this is definitely a big theatrical experience that is something you need to experience with other people. Yeah, the audience factor of this and Smile and Boogeyman uh, and um, what's the other one? The- Barbarian. Barbarian. Yeah, they all had similarity feelings. Barbarian's obviously a little more bonkers, so it's even higher the laughs. But they're saying me and Beck have seen, I think, all of those together, and each time. It's mm-hmm. just it, I wish there's more experiences in life like that, but it reminds me of why I loved movies in the very, when I was young, and so it's actually it's very rewarding seeing it with young people. Weirdly enough, an audience I'd normally avoid in a serious straight drama, <laughs> I am flocking to for this. So, uh, yes. great work, man! Like seriously, really great, great Thank job, you. and Thank you. hope to see you on the bike path someday. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening tonight. Elric and I are taking a short break while Elric goes and jet sets around Europe for a couple of weeks. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be just here on my couch. Just here. That's it. You're just no one needs to know break. about my personal life where I am. <laughs> oh yeah. We never talk about that. Well, Elric is going on vacation for a bit. We will be back in about a month. So um, if you start missing us in the meantime, our Patreon show will still be up and running and rocking and rolling in the meantime. We'll still be doing shows as regular. I've got some really fun guests that we're booking out on the Patreon show for a whole $3. You can check it out. We're we're a cheap date, y'all. Um, so head on over to Deep Cuts and find us on Patreon. And otherwise, um, we will be back in August with uh, a whole bunch of amazing summer horrors to catch up on. So yes, thank I you think we're going to so try much. to start with some Australians when we come back. Speaking of Lake Mungo, we're going to try to return with some Australian horror. Yeah, that could be a definitely. big deal this year. Yeah. I hear it's going to be a big deal. So we're we're looking to tape that one in July. Like Elric will have to, you know, tape from Spain or wherever he's going to be. I'm just here. Just so I'm we just can fit that one in. Just I here. don't want just anyone to Spain. rob me. I'm not telling anyone I'm away. It's like, <laughs> come on, now I'm going to get robbed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you guys so much. And uh, have a fantastic couple of weeks.
The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. <laughs>